and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, all skills that we're going to talk about in this conversation today, as soft, devalues them and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the responses on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or even over email and text message about the book. I can't tell you how much it means to hear from you about it, so thanks for reading. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which provides one-on-one coaching from myself. It's designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Today's guest actually talks about her journey with leadership and executive coaching and how it's helped her become a better leader. Our next accelerator launches in July and it's filling up now. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Rebecca Powers is going to share how her life changed from anger, from some bitterness, from an experience that she had with her brother, and in turn, how she opened up a magazine that drastically changed the course of her career and the course of her life. And I'll let her tell that story as she'll do far better job than I could in telling it. But she founded Impact Austin, a collective giving organization that brings women and their financial resources together to make a profound impact in Central Texas. To date, the organization has put up $7.4 million to work by helping the underserved. Rebecca received multiple awards recognizing her leadership, and she speaks nationally, inspiring women to connect their capacity to give with their confidence to do it well. She also mentors women in cities across the United States as they form their own collectives. As I said, Rebecca used some pain in her life to really leverage impact to do good. And this is a conversation about leadership. This is a conversation about growth 
And this is a conversation about going for it when you feel a tug and taking a leap. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Rebecca Powers. Rebecca, excited to have you on the podcast. Kevin Eastman, whose wife and you go way back. We're not going to talk about how far back. That's not necessary. But you go way back. And I asked Kevin, who should I have on the podcast? And you were the first name. And he followed up again and said, hey, make sure you have Rebecca on. So here we are. And I'm really excited to chat with you and learn. Because philanthropy is something that I care deeply about. I'm involved with nonprofits. Uh, One of my big theories is that if I do well, then I can do a whole lot of good. And I think there are some people who want to do good and they don't always get to also do well. And so I'm curious to learn from you and your background and how you think about these things and how you think about inspiring people to do good. So first take us to the beginning of when philanthropy even came into your existence and a thought for you that this is something that you could focus on and, and, and leverage to get fulfillment from? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I, I know I'm going to enjoy the conversation. Um, to tell you the truth, until 2003, I had never given a penny in my community did not consider myself a philanthropist, did give to my place of worship and my kids PTA, but those were communities I knew. And um, I was flying home from Sacramento, California to Austin, Texas, after having seen my brother for the last time. He was dying of cancer um, and I was heartbroken. I was angry. He did not go to the doctor soon enough to prevent his uh, demise. And I bought People magazine just for fluff on the airplane. And I wanted to escape on the four and a half, five hour flight home. When I opened it, I read a two page article about a woman who had gathered 122 other women to pool their $1,000 contributions. And they gave $123,000 to a dental clinic for the homeless in their city. And I remember sitting up in that airplane seat going, oh my gosh, I don't even know where the homeless people are in Austin, number one. Number two, I don't even, it never occurred to me that they'd have a need for a dentist and where would they go get help? And as I thought about that, I decided in a heartbeat that I could go back to Austin, Texas and find a hundred women with a thousand dollars. We could pool our money and we could make a high impact grant to somebody in our nonprofit in our community. And that that would help heal the hole in my heart from the loss of my brother. You said something when you're talking about your brother, where you said he didn't go to the doctor fast enough. Was there bitterness inside you about him not going and taking care of himself? Yes. Um, and, and I would say it was anger. Um, my, my brother, when he presented himself to the doctor had stage four colon cancer and really the, the, the journey was over, but they did chemo and it didn't go well. Um, however, in the last 10 weeks of his life via a keyboard, and instant messaging, he and I became closer than we ever were talking about real life challenges, the things that made us tick. So I really got to know my brother. And then um, when he passed away, I had already started this organization because I knew his, you know, he, he wasn't going to be around very long. And um, I turned that anger into something positive and focused on the good that I could do as a result of, of his death. But I'm fascinated by you're on this airplane and you're bitter and you're angry with him and you're knowing he's gone, he's going to die. I want more time with him. It sounds like I'm just getting to know him and I'm, I'm really learning him, but then you go to this place no offense. You said people magazine, right? Like, like no offense to people magazine, but it's not exactly the place that I think of where inspiration lives. Um, talk about the polarity or the paradox between feeling anger, going for to something that seems mindless and finding inspiration within that, that, that just seems like a, an interesting thing. So I, 
I think what made all of that possible is that my heart was open for whatever reason to receive whatever message I was going to get. And this two-page, I, I bought uh, Women's Day, Ladies Home Journal, and People Magazine, three fluffy magazines to read on the way home to escape. So I didn't even have to think. My eyes were swollen. Um, I'd been crying. And when that article appeared in People Magazine, I'm telling you, I thought... I looked around to see if people thought I looked different because it changed the trajectory of my life in a heartbeat. I knew I was going to go home and do this. And um, from that moment forward, it's almost like I forgave my brother for all of the things he didn't do and um, knew that he had two young adult kids that I could help them see that in his death, good things could happen. And so I was on a mission to heal the hole in my heart and didn't really care what, how, how the journey would play out. I needed to take care of me. And it ended up that uh, the model was simple and uh, women got excited and we just continued to put one foot in front of the other. You mentioned church and PTA being the two places where you were actively giving. Is faith a, a piece to your existence? It sounds like it is as you nod your head. So talk about faith and in, in church and how it's played a role in your life. So um, I have a, a, a very deep faith. I am a professed born again Christian, meaning that I know that Christ is the center of my life and he guides what I do. So when I read that article on the airplane, I knew I was supposed to do it. And when I talk about uh, trusting my gut and trusting my instincts, I knew that the wind beneath my wings wasn't mine, number one, and that if I was obedient to that call, because I do believe, I, I knew I was supposed to do this, that if I was obedient, God would be faithful. And I, I am not a born again Christian, but I do know some research around philanthropy and philanthropy in this country has been a hallmark and you probably can educate me as well during this conversation, but we are better at philanthropy than anywhere in the world. It's part of our culture of giving back. Um, and I think a part of that is because of our connection to religion um, and look, separation of church and state, it's complicated. And um, I don't really want to get into all the nuance to that. But what I will say is, as people leave organized religion in this country, and the numbers are, are telling, people are leaving organized religion more so today than they ever have, the numbers of philanthropy and people giving back are also going down. And so it's an interesting correlation that the church or any religion has context and and avenues and platforms to give back and they all do talk about service regardless of your religion and there is a concern when i talk to people in the philanthropy world about as people move away from religion that they're also losing that idea of service and being philanthropic so i'd love to learn from you yeah yeah go ahead jump in there so um a little bit of a different take on that. Um, if it, Impact Austin is agnostic and apolitical, so it doesn't come up. I stand on my faith, but I don't use it as a way to get women to invest. However, what I've, what I've learned over these 18 years is that people are disconnected a lot of times from religion or from their community. And I don't want to say there's a comfort in it, but we kind of sit in that and maybe we're a little bit paralyzed. The model of Impact Austin is a way to get women to engage again and women who have not been a part of philanthropy. So they feel like it's a level playing field. You know, everybody puts in the same amount of money. So we don't have real high wealth people or people who struggle. That may be the case. Nobody knows because we all put in the same amount. And what that does is build community. And when you build community, people start caring not only about the marginalized people they're helping via their contributions, 
but they start caring about each other. And our members have helped other members find jobs, coached them, mentored them in their careers just by virtue of the fact that they've gotten to know each other with philanthropy being the foundation. And I'm not suggesting that it has to be either or. Um, Certainly someone can be religious and still be involved in what you're doing. They don't have to be. But the one thing, religion is complicated and different meaning and different beliefs for everybody. But the communal component of religion, they have done a good job of a a place to worship, going to a place on a Saturday or a Sunday or whenever it is that you pray. That communal gathering, especially during COVID, um, is lacking. Um, So it sounds like you've tapped into also the idea of we're not just going to give, but we're going to give in a communal fashion and, and create support systems through service. And it does a couple other things. Um, we so uh, we have a lot of women who were never philanthropic till they joined the organization. Just like I, I was the poster child for that. Here's what happens: when you give, you find out you have even more capacity. And the more you learn about the needs in the community, our members pocketbooks have opened up exponentially when they find about other needs in the community they didn't know. They're like, well, I have capacity to help them too. But before they were a member of Impact Austin, they didn't give anything. So this is a way for women, people, families to see that they do have the capacity to make a difference. The other thing is women, whether they stay members or they leave, um, They talk about their experience, what they've learned, and they're like, you know what? I feel like I matter now. I feel like I'm doing something of significance, and we all want to live a life that matters, and that gives us an opportunity to do that. So obviously, you read the magazine, and you take this leap of faith, and you say, all right, let's go create this. What was that like? What was the next day for you, and and what what did you even do with this? Like, How did you go about doing it? So I don't know if you know StrengthsFinder or have ever done the test, but my, so my top three strengths are woo. I can sell anybody on anything. So I didn't worry that I couldn't find women. But my second one is I'm an activator. So I start things and I'm achiever. I finish things. You give me a plan, I'll make it happen. So the next day I was in um, a neighborhood Bible study and I told the 10 women, in this group, I said, you are not going to believe what I'm going to do. And I need one of two things. You either need to tell me to back off the edge of that cliff and not jump, or, um, or you need to tell me to jump, or you need to tell me I'm crazy, because I really think I'm going to do this. And I told everybody I saw what my plans were just to get a feel for uh, people's thinking. And what happened was women were like, well, I don't know how we'll make this happen, but I want to invest. I want to help you build this organization. Simple concept, um, complicated to execute. But I told uh, my son played high school baseball. um, So I talked to all the moms in the bleachers. You know, I said, tell me what you think about this. And slowly but surely, women said, not only do I want to invest, but I have two friends who need to hear about this. And it was a viral, contagious kind of thing. And I never stopped talking about it. My husband was a little um, circumspect. And he's the pragmatic one. You know, I'm the idealist. And I'm like, I can make this happen. Well, how are you going to do this? I said, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And um, he, it took four days of us going back and forth talking about it. And he said, you know what, Reb, if you don't try this, you will regret it someday. You know, you'll be like, what if I would have done that? So he gave me his um, blessing and off I went. As you were talking, I looked up my strength finder because I don't have it off the top of my head, but I have activator. So I think we're on the same page there. Ideation, there's your woo. Uh, woo is three, command is four, and empathy is five. Um, and so I, I'm an idea person too. I get excited and then I go do stuff. What had you created before this? What had you, because it sounds like this is something 
you probably had other things that you wanted to create and make happen in the past. What had you been doing beforehand? So I had my my professional career was as a sales rep with IBM for 14 years. And I learned a lot about business, how to write a business plan, how to execute one, how to set goals. So that was very helpful with Impact Austin. What I hadn't realized until just recently is I've been an entrepreneur since I was 12 years old. I was bored one summer and created a little summer nursery school for the kids in my neighborhood that I would babysit for. Uh, Each mom had to pay a dollar a day and it gave me enough money to buy a swimsuit my mom wouldn't buy for me. And, uh, and enough money left over to save. So I did that when I was 12. I was in junior achievement in high school where we had to start a business, build a product and sell it. And I was the top salesperson. I just laugh now when I think about it. And then in 2000, a neighbor and I decided that in our neighborhood, uh, people didn't really know each other. So we started a Bible study just to see who, who might come. And we sent out 60 invitations, 20 women showed up. That was in 2000. It's what, 2021. It is still going strong, 80 some women. And, and then I started Impact Austin in 2003. So I am a, um, an entrepreneur in, in that regard. And I think it comes naturally because it's been happening uh, my whole life, but I've never given myself credit for it. And now that I look back, I see it all. Were either of your parents an entrepreneur? No. Mm -mm. My mom, uh, stay-at-home mom with four kids. My father uh, was a civil engineer with Caterpillar Tractor Company and not philanthropic. They gave to church. That was it. So I didn't learn philanthropy. Um, But starting at 48, I, I learned, and now what I give back is incredibly more than I ever thought I could. Why do you make a distinction between giving to church and, and philanthropy? What's the distinction there? So it is all philanthropy, but giving to my church and PTA, those are communities I know. I know where the money's going, and it's easy, and it's comfortable, and somebody asked, came and asked me to support some aspect. When I give to the community, I don't know the nonprofits. I don't necessarily know that they're going to be able to do what they say they're going to do with my money. So there is more, for me, research involved and uh, getting to know a community that I don't know all the players. And so that was a different experience. And you mentioned $1,000. So when I hear $1,000, I hear, hey, that's a significant amount of money for most people, how do you even, I'm sure there are people in your group that saying, Hey, a thousand dollars, I'm really stretching to make that happen. And there's others that it might be a drop in the bucket for, do you have conversations about that as a group? And, or is everybody just, Hey, we're all here. We all have the same amount. We're all in the same boat. Let's go figure it out. Or is there also some ideas of like quantifying how much it means to different people? Great question. And I I will tell you over the years, we've evolved that um, in the beginning, it was a $1,000. And um, I didn't really make um, apologies for that amount, because I believed that it was significant enough, whether you had to save all year, or it was just a drop in the bucket, you care what an organization is going to do if you give them $1,000, which means the women were very invested in helping to research and volunteer because they wanted to know what was happening with their money. And we needed volunteers to make this model work. And then um, there would be women who, and and Brian, I, I, I really say this without judgment. There are women who are wearing um, designer shoes and carrying designer purses, and they have eight of them. That's their choice. And that's where their values are. But I also knew if they didn't buy one of those, they could give a thousand dollars. And so it was up to them to make the choice. I just made the offer. Over time, what happened was we, you know, initially I asked the women I knew, right. And then they asked the women they knew. So we were all kind of sort of in the same 
running circles, if you will. As time has gone on, I love it when I don't know a member because it means she came from many, many circles out. And we realized we were not attracting younger women because they're paying off car loans or school loans, buying a house. And so we have um, changed the way that women can invest so that we make it, um, it's still meaningful to them, but it is accessible. So great question. Well, I'm in my 30s, um, now in my late 30s, even though (laughs) that sounds weird to say, but I'm around people that you're probably trying to attract. And it is tricky because a lot of those people are, they are still in their mind going up and trying to create security and safety for their family and save for college or whatever their situation might be. So to turn around and say, hey, you just earned that. Now I want to give some of that away can be complicated. So what have you learned about attracting young members and, and how do you go about doing it? And, and how has that shown itself as you continue to evolve? So we have, I'm going to call it a coalition for lack of a better word. Uh, some of our younger members who were willing to invest before we had a plan and, uh, you know, put them in a, in a focus group and said, how can we attract more of your friends who are not necessarily where you are on the, um, in the realm of, of giving back. And, uh, a couple of things, you know, let us volunteer, make part of our investment that we spend time volunteering So that is a way and we don't pay as much or give us a different grant opportunity where we, if we give $500, it goes in a different pot and we get to, we get to figure that out. Uh, We have members who do have deep pockets who will give scholarships and give women, for example, um, we will scholarship you for two years. After those two years, it will be up to you to invest on your own or, or, or not. And I will tell you what happens is when women get involved, regardless of the age, they see what they get in giving back, that the joy they get and the meaning they have that typically they will start setting money aside. Well, I typically call BS when people talk about generational, uh, things like, oh, this generation is this, this generation is that. And I usually go to the research and try to figure out, all right, what, what are, are there, are there things? Cause I just think so much is tied into a person's identity. One of which is when they're born, but their sexuality, their religion, their race, their uh, ethnicity, their culture. I mean, there's just a lot that goes into who somebody is beyond when they're born. Having said all that, the generation that you're probably trying to attract, there is good research that suggests that they want to feel valued and they want to feel fulfillment and they value fulfillment and significance is a word that you use. Um, So I'd imagine tugging on that desire to feel significant and making an impact and feeling valuable is actually highly attractive to 20 somethings and and 30 somethings uh, as you sort of tell them about the work that you all are doing. Well, and, And one way that that we addressed it, and it was early on, and it came from our daughter who was 13 at the time, Um, philanthropy is learned. You are not born a philanthropist, and you have to see it role modeled, or you don't get what it can do. And that very first year of starting Impact Austin, we still hadn't gotten all of our members, but it was Christmas, the tradition we celebrate. And that morning, our 13-year-old daughter crumpled envelope, tears in her eyes. She had worked chores that my husband had given her to give me $100 to help impact Austin. And she said, mom, I have never seen you so happy. And when I grow up, I want to be a member. I was in a puddle of tears. She's sitting on my lap. And I remember, you know, pushing her away from me and looking at her and saying, sweetie pie, you don't have to wait till you're an adult. What if you got your girlfriends to each bring $100 to the table, pool your money, give a grant 
to kids in the community, something that's meaningful. And you can do it now. You don't have to wait. And sure enough, it took about 18 months. One of our board members was very young, newly married, no kids. So she was really smart when it came to teenage girls. <laughs> but they created a, it's called Girls Giving Grants. It's still going today. And um, they had 21 girls, $2,100, which was a lot to them. And they gave it to a, 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 a children's shelter for abused kids. It changed my daughter. And she's 31 today and still involved in philanthropy. And that is how the younger women we get in Impact Austin, at least in the early days, were girls who had been involved in philanthropy from a young age. So they knew the value. I think it's it's so true. So when you say 13, I'm Jewish. And so for 13-year-olds, oh. um, we, we get bar and bat mitzvahed and- yeah we give back like a part of that process is sadaka is what it's called and giving back. And you have these little sadaka jars and you put coins in them and it is embedded into our religion from a very young age. And I, I never really connected these dots until right now, when I was in high school, my parents were involved with a nonprofit called hoop dreams and hoop dreams was designed to get inner city um, high school students scholarships to go to college. And they had a basketball tournament. So that's why it was called Hoop Dreams. And when I was in high school, the most proud thing, the most impactful experience for me was starting a club called Hoop Dreams at my high school. And we had a basketball tournament. And I remember we raised a thousand dollars. There's a thousand dollar number. And we had cash because there were kids. So kids would give $10 to join the basketball tournament. We took the cash, we put it in. Then we did pizza sales and car washes and all this stuff. And I started this club and that was the thing I was most proud of, of my high school experience um, was starting Hoop Dreams and giving a bag of cash to this nonprofit um, and, and just the feeling it gave. And then I went on to study sociology in college and African-American studies. And I actually wanted to work for Teach for America when I graduated, but they didn't, they didn't want me. They didn't, I didn't get it. I, I didn't get the job. Um, a good dose of failure never hurt anybody. But to your point, I think I was really shaped by my parents from a young age who taught us the responsibility of give back. My younger brother was involved in a giving circle. Um, my mom helped lead a giving circle. Um, they were always very philanthropic and not always out there. A lot of times my parents would give anonymously and I would go to something and I would see the word anonymous and I would understand that anonymous was synonymous with my parents. Um, so like to me, I think it is such a big piece of who I am and who I've become. And I'm so grateful for my parents and my community in that they embedded this into me at a very young age. And I think it really shapes how I think about once again, doing well and, and also doing good. So I know I went on a tangent, but it, those dots hadn't been connected like that. So thank you. And I think, I think what was so powerful to me is that I in my zest for getting Impact Austin off the ground, I didn't realize I was role modeling the significance of giving back and, and what that looked like. And our son, who was 16 at the time, had, had his first job at Fuddruckers, a hamburger place, and um, it, it proudly announced that he was going to write a check to give me... Um, to support Impact Austin. And it was the first time I'd ever seen him think outside of himself, not, you know, not being self-centered. And I thought, you know, that's all good. And it, and it's continued. It, they've each done things in their own way. But um, that's what I hope happens with all these young women who, who go through girls. And some of them are old enough now, like our daughter, who is a member of Impact Austin as an adult, because she gets the, the significance. So that's kind of fun. Women. So that's been a thread throughout this conversation. Why women other than reading a magazine and just reading about it? Um, and I'm sure there have been thoughts like, do we keep this as just women or do we expand it or maybe not? So tell me about what the experience has been like to work with women on this. So when we started, we did a lot of research about giving circles and typically they're women. They're not all uh, women, but there are um, two women 
Margaret Taylor and Sandra, Sandra Shaw Hardy, who wrote a book, and they talk about the six C's of women's giving. And I don't always remember them, but it's create, commit, connect, celebrate, change. And they describe each of those verbs and what, what they mean. And so what we did is we made sure that Impact Austin's model hit every one of those C's. I went to my husband when we were creating this and I said, sweetheart, here are these six C's. And he's like, you go, girl. I'll write a check, but I don't need to sit around a table and discuss how we're going to spend the money. I'm not all about celebrating our success, but women are. And so also, if you put a gentleman at a table and he's even the only one and the rest are women, the conversation is different and it changes. How so? Because there is, I'll use the word deference, but when there's a man in the room and he raises his hand because he's got an answer, he's probably 20% sure he's right. Whereas we don't raise our hands till we're about 80% sure. So what happens is the conversation gets a little lopsided and to have someone be able to facilitate that. And we had women who were scared to death thinking they weren't smart enough to review grant applications. We had to teach them how to do that. It just leveled the playing field and got us moving forward. And frankly, can I tell you, We've never had a man ask to join our organization. <laughs> what do you think that's about? Oh, because they love what we do, but they don't, they don't want to be a part of it. I did have a guy young, 15 years younger than I, invite me for coffee early on and say, Rebecca, I want to start a men's organization just like this. And I said, you get a group of guys together that you think will help you build it. I will come tell you how we did it and inspire you and you'll know who, who will be on board to help you. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to find 100 guys who have $1,000, but you're going to run it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I will mentor, but you all have to do the work too. And that volunteering and managing people, that's not what they wanted to do with their volunteer time. Mm. So it's a, it's that... Um, it just fits how women give. It's so interesting. I, I was part of a giving circle and there were nine of us. So not, not as many people as what you all are doing. And we did it one year and we gave to an organization. And after going through that process, we all sort of looked at each other and said, do we want to do this again? And it was, it was mixed gender. Um, and we just sort of said, nah, we'd rather just give on our own. Um, and so I'm curious if there's ever people that go through the program and say, Hey, I enjoyed this. I like this. I'm now armed with some knowledge and some skills, but for this thousand dollars, like I know exactly where I want to put it and I'd rather give on my own. Does that happen? Oh, all the time. And we love it because one of the things we said when we were recruiting our first year is if you want to invest in impact Austin, don't just take the money you're giving over here and now give it to us because that's just changing pockets and it's not creating additional impact. And so um, when our women have an experience with Impact Austin and they only have $1,000, but they fell in love with an organization they learned about through our process, if they apologize, they're like, oh, Rebecca, I, I really wish I could invest again. I can't, but I'm going to go to this nonprofit and give my money. And we're like, that is new money in the community. That nonprofit wins. We will find your replacement with Impact Austin, you know? And so we are a living, breathing organism. Many women move through us because they want to learn about the needs in the community and then they go fund their passion. And it's awesome. What did you learn from leading this organization? What did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about leadership? So I, I learned that being really good at sales is totally different than being a good leader because I can convince anybody to do anything in a sales sort of way and they surprise themselves going, oh, please, you know, don't talk to my friend because she'll join too if she just hears you. But leadership 
is a totally different animal. I um, had to learn painfully how to lead. And uh, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, he has a little um, social monograph or a monograph that he wrote for the social sector. And there is his sentence, true leadership only exists if people follow when they have the freedom not to. And I, when I read that, it became my mantra, meaning Rebecca, you have to role model encouragement. You have to give people freedom to do whatever they want within certain parameters. And um, I had to get a leadership coach for a couple of years. And what did that look like? <laughs> uh, twice a week, it was, or twice a month, it was painful. <laughs> and I, you know what I loved? I got to go to her and say, Nancy, here's the, here's the situation. Let's, can you role play with me? How am I going to handle this? And she gave me such great uh, prompts and um, uh, visual things to think about in difficult conversations, learning how to breathe before I opened my mouth. And it gave me so much more confidence because sometimes I had to make a decision that was unpopular, right? that a leader does have to do that. But I had to be sure that I was doing it because it was the best thing for Impact Austin. It wasn't protecting my ego. That was hard. I would say the biggest challenge to a lot of my clients is making that transition from great salesperson to sales manager. And it's not even, you took a different leap, but many of them have to just move from, if they're great at sales, the next step is, all right, you're a manager. And boy, oh boy, they, they, they really struggle because what happens is when you're in sales and you can jump in if you disagree, but when you're in sales, you're trying to serve the client and you're going to do whatever you need to do to make sure that that client gets what they need. When you're a sales manager, now you're not just thinking about clients. You're now thinking about the team and you're now thinking about the whole ecosystem and you're thinking about the client. So who you serve now triples. It goes from just a client to now, oh, well, we actually have a team that we're trying to get to function well. And sometimes that salesperson is not necessarily helping the team. Now we also need to be thinking about, well, what's best for the client may not be best for the entire organization. And so it becomes complicated. And I see you nodding your head. How did you deal with some of those challenges as you took on a leadership role? I do think what helped me in some regards as what you describe is exactly what I lived as an IBM sales rep. The really good salespeople ended up becoming the sales managers, my bosses. That wasn't necessarily their wheelhouse. And they could derail a team in a heartbeat. Um, be, and, but you got rewarded at IBM for being really, really good at sales. And so when, um, when people told me early on with Impact Austin that I was a great leader and I would go, no, I'm not, but they would tell me I was. And so guess what? I believed it. So I believed that everything I was doing was the right thing. And it, and it really wasn't. And I had to, um, I had some really, um, I kid, I have a barn swallow on my back deck that's out there all the time. And I would just go out there and talk to it, you know, like, what? Why am I so controlling? Why do I not believe that people can have as much passion for this as I do? Um, and, and I had to learn the difference between perfect and good enough. There are times when good enough is exactly what we needed but I was looking for perfect as opposed to there are times when perfect is what it has to be. I, I call that a newsletter. I don't want typos, you know, but when somebody turns in a report that has all the right information, but it's not in the right format, I would get all out of whack because they didn't use the right form. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and um, so those are examples I use that I just wasn't equipped, but what I'm grateful for is that I'm, I'm a curious learner and I just, I wanted to be better because it was starting to not get fun and this needed to be fun. I have a newsletter and I sent one out 
and there were all kinds of typos and I read it and I just lost it on myself and didn't show myself a whole lot of grace. And then I create, created systems and processes and checkpoints to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future. It still probably will, but at least now there's a system to try to catch it. I also on Twitter, where I like to play a lot, um, they don't have an edit button. So when you put something out there, you can't go back and change it. Whereas Facebook and LinkedIn, you can edit. And I recently posted on Twitter. I'm like, you know what? It's good. Not everything needs to be fully proofread when you're putting out 200 words. It's okay. Like it, it, we're allowed to share our imperfect self on Twitter. And I think that's part of what makes Twitter special. And so to your point, finding out like on the newsletter, no, if people are spending their time reading it, like that needs to be way better than it is. Whereas Twitter can be a place where I play and I journal and I, I put things out and it doesn't have to be perfect. And having space for both of those, I think is, is really important. Go ahead. So I guess how I looked when I think of a newsletter, yours or mine, that is my brand. Right. So that says a lot about me, what it looks like, how it feels, what I'm communicating. That's why to me, perfect. I am sure there was a typo in every single one. I didn't, you know, but there at least weren't 30. Yeah. You're um, aspiring. You're aspiring for the perfection. You're, you're, you're creating processes to have someone proofread it, to edit it, to make sure that it's done the right way. And so I'm, I'm fully in agreement with you. And I think there is a place where we have to have some perfectionism in what we do in our preparation. And we shouldn't take people's attention lightly. And we owe it to them to make sure that it's done in a professional way. And when you talked to me before we started recording, you said, I'm a builder and entrepreneur, but I'm not great at creating systems and processes. And I asked you like, well, why aren't you still in this thing? Like, why did you move on? And I think you said you haven't been involved in the last 10 years. So wh where did that come up for you that that was something that maybe I'm not the best to run this from a systems and organization standpoint. So I promised myself that the day I woke up and the pain outweighed the joy was the day that things had shifted and impact Austin deserved a different leader. In the first eight years, I'd wake up, I wouldn't even care what problem, obstacle, challenge faced me. I was jazzed to figure it out because it was an unknown. Typically, we hadn't gotten to that point. But when things started to run in a rhythm, then it was like, well, now we need to refine this and make it more efficient. That does not excite me. And when I'm not excited about what I'm doing, I don't do my best work. So it wasn't good for Impact Austin. And so that day came, I will tell you, Brian, my head got there faster than my heart. And the letting go was a whole nother learning experience. I did not do it well at first. And it probably took two years for my heart to catch up with my head. And um, those are the things that I like to talk to other collective giving organizations about, because it's going to happen to them too. And how do you behave differently in a way that can make the transition to a new leader smoother? What gives you joy today? What gives you joy now? Um, so I'm writing a book. I have no idea what that is going to bring me in, the, in terms of opportunity. And I get to dream. I get to create a reality that I will work towards that is mine. And um, I, I, I just love the unknown. There are people who are like, now, Reb, you know, be careful of your expectations. And I'm like, okay, you can be careful of my expectations, but I will continue to dream because it's what fuels me and keeps me going. Well, I'm a dreamer as well. And my book came out last October. Oh. And I would tell people that if they want to experience joy, I don't recommend writing a book because it is absolutely painful, especially if you are like myself and I'm going to call you Reb because it sounds like people call you Reb. Um, look, like there are a lot of painful moments, but I think people mistake joy and pleasure a lot. Like um, it doesn't have to be pleasurable to still experience joy. Um, and so for me, the book was joyful because I got to explore all of these pieces 
to what I've learned um, in my career and then share it. And that's been a joyful process, but painful nonetheless. So as you're writing, good luck, have some, have some joy and some grace and compassion for yourself when it becomes painful. If it, if it hasn't already, which oh, I'm it, sure it has. It, it, it hasn't. Um, it's, it's weird. It's ugly head several times. It, it is now, um, it, it's, it's, currently being published. And so all of my work, really, someone else is doing all the mechanics of that. Um, I've been through the pain of the edits. And does anybody want to read this? You know, is my story really? And um, so all of that, but um, Brian, thank you. Pleasure versus joy. That's going to be part of my message, because you are so right. We confuse those and they're different, because it wasn't always pleasant but there is joy in that mess. The analogy I give is I love eating steak. Pleasure. Like I can eat steak in a closet. I'm, I, I record these podcasts in a closet for those that don't know, but I can eat a steak right here. I'm not sure I'm going to experience joy from eating the steak, but it's going to give me some pleasure. Whereas I could eat Fuddruckers, no, no, no offense to Fuddruckers, but I could eat at Fuddruckers with someone with the best company in the world and really experience joy. And, and so I think sometimes we conflate the two and joy often actually occurs from hard work. It, 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 it occurs from sweat. It occurs from challenge and perseverance and, um, it, and it can, it, it can come from sitting on a couch with your kids doing nothing. I think like it can show itself in a lot of different ways. Um, but I am somebody who like, I, I changed my focus from happiness to just feeling alive. And that has been a big shift for me, which is I used to focus on, Hey, I want to be happy. Now I'm like, Hey, I just want to feel alive. And I feel alive in all kinds of different environments, including recording this podcast and interviewing you. Um, as I go into your story and, and, and learn about what you're up to now, I want you to talk a little bit about Trust Your Cape, which is the name of the book, how you're mentoring and what you see yourself doing going forward um, and how inspiration is a part of what you're all about and what you want to continue to do. So I started writing this book 10 years ago because someone told me I should. Who told you that? <laughs> A literary agent in New York City, a boutique agency found me. I, I don't even remember to this day how. But they said, would you write a book about starting your organization? I wrote about 12,000 words. And we could not connect on what I thought, what the story I wanted to write and what they really wanted me to write. And it happened in a way that they were like, you know, you need to read this book on writing and then go back and write. I immediately said, I'm not a writer. I'm not good enough. And I put it away. I put it in my hope chest. This past September, I happened to listen to a webinar of a woman who coaches authors through the process. And, she's, and she gave me a half hour consult. And she said, you will not be any more ready tomorrow than you are today to write this book. Everybody has a story. And it needs to be told. So when would you like to start? <laughs> and that assumptive close, um, I started in September. It'll be published on May 25th. And we put an eight-month plan together. And um, I realized two things. Um, I do believe in the end, it's a love letter to my family, helping them see the changes inside of me that I'm not sure they know all about how it's changed our family and thanking them for their patience in impact. Austin was my lover for eight years, but also there are women who, who want to read my story because I tell more about myself, not just the persona that women saw as Rebecca founder of impact Austin. I tell my family stories and personal issues, all the learnings I had, I opened my cape and said, here are the um, insecurities I had, my confidence was down, which people would never believe. But being able, um, it was an experience in being vulnerable. And that in itself was really hard to do. But I'm an open book now. I feel like I've put that out there for anybody to read. And it's the truth. Uh, some of it was hard. But now, um, 
the story of Trust Your Cape is about my journey, you know, starting, leading, and letting go of Impact Austin. But it has so many parallels that women can use in any part of their life. Taking action. You know, what is your cape made of and what are you going to go do? And how do I inspire women to either get involved in philanthropy or go do the thing they've been waiting to do and it's just never been the right time? So I hired a writing coach when I did my book and her name is Larry Bishop and Larry is in Austin, Texas. My publisher, Chris Pauls, also in Austin, Texas. And I had my bachelor party also in Austin, Texas. So you get all sides of me, um, little pieces of me in Austin, Texas. Um, but what a, what a cool town. I'm curious for you. Let's just talk about Austin for a second, because it is an evolving, growing, changing community um, that I think is just fascinating in your organization called Impact Austin. So uh, I'd love to just learn a little bit about how Austin has evolved over the years and how that impacted the impact that you were making in that community as well. So what I love, what Impact Austin has done after my tenure is learned how to pivot when the needs of the community change. And that is because we're evolving. We are, there are so many ethnicities here and so many that have issues that we are very nimble as an organization and can identify where the big needs are and help fund those nonprofits who are um, helping the marginalized. We also, um, it, it, we're the uh, majority minority now. And so it is very Hispanic, a lot of Asian and Indian influence because of high tech. Those communities give back differently. So how do we as Impact Austin honor their ways of doing it, but incorporate it into our philanthropy so that we can have a body of members and leadership, our board leadership is extremely diverse so that people can look at us and say, oh, well, at least they must understand us because the, the women who are a part of it have varied living experiences. And it seems like for you, your mission is broadening beyond Austin. And there's a desire to share what you all have done in your community with other people in their communities. So talk about what you do, how you do it to try to mentor speaking and impact and influence people throughout the country. So it started happening when um, there would be organizations in different parts of the country who were not growing very much. And we, we just happened to have the, um, the reputation. We were the largest collective giving organization at the thousand dollar level at that, at that level. Um, the first in the country to have 500 women and people couldn't believe that we could do that, especially when none of us had been involved in philanthropy, you know, where did you find these women? And so um, my deal always was, I will pay for the airfare. You put me up and let me speak to your entire organization and I will inspire you to grow your membership just by the story. So I started doing that. And then what happened is other women would hear about Impact Austin, knowing that I was willing to mentor and say, hey, we're thinking of starting one in our city. We did it in Port. I just did it a couple of years ago in Portland, Oregon. The woman had been in Austin was never a part of us, but went to Portland and decided she wanted to start one there. So she called and she said, would you come spend two days with us and just let us pick your brain and share? And my whole deal is I will go anywhere as long as I don't come home with any homework. You know, I'm just sharing. I'm not, I'm not doing your research. I'm not. And um, I've learned a lot from them even those who are brand new that then I bring back to impact Austin saying, you know, they're thinking of things this way. Have we ever considered that? So it's a really good way for us to keep the pulse on, on new organizations and what they're doing. Fantastic. And the book is coming out. Yes. And so if people want to purchase the book, where can they go about doing that? And if people want to learn more about you and impact Austin, uh, where can people find you? 
So you can learn more about Impact Austin at impactaustin.org. If you want to know about the book, you can go to impactaustin.org, two forward slashes, trust your cape. And that is a landing page all about the book and you can be notified when it's available. It will be available on May 25th on amazon.com. And um, we're having a big launch party. I'm giving the proceeds of the sale of the book back to Impact Austin to help build our endowment to help us be permanent, a permanent organization in the community. So people are rallying around that. How cool is that? And this recording will actually come out with your book. It's out. It's out, Rebecca. Your your book oh, is out. Okay. So we, we've already covered it. Rebecca's become a bestseller. Her dreams have come true. Her expectations have gone through the roof and we can all celebrate her uh, since so, the, the book's already out. <laughs> and now all you have to do is go to amazon.com and there type in trust your cape and you're done. <laughs> there it is. Well, Rebecca, I'm, I'm grateful that we were able to connect. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Thanks to Kevin Eastman for connecting us. Looking forward to, to reading the book and checking it out and learning about all the different ways that you continue to inspire our people. I've got a four-year-old daughter. And for me, you've got me thinking not just for her, but also my five-year-old son about how we can embed a lot of the philanthropic thoughts and beliefs that my parents instilled in me um, into them and be really intentional about how we can continue to make this world a little bit better each person at a time. And uh, credit to you for doing it, getting people, but also getting dollars back into your community. And uh, I think it's inspiring for all of us to hear, and we all have an obligation and responsibility to do so as well. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, hope you continue to inspire the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Philanthropy is learned. You are not born a philanthropist and you have to see it role modeled or you don't get what it can do. 